Welcome to the Jiu-Jitsu of Life, a weekly podcast for BJJ enthusiasts who are striving to succeed both on and off the mats. This podcast is brought to you by Robles, makers of the world's finest custom jiu-jitsu apparel. And here are your hosts on the Jiu-Jitsu of Life, Carter Fisk and Mo Siddiqui. We were talking about breakfast tacos. Yeah, yeah, we were talking about the, uh, was it slow is smooth? No. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Is that what the saying Correct. is? Correct. Yes. And, and that's, uh, that's true to a lot of things. We were saying it's true with breakfast tacos, which a lot of people, they don't talk about that, but I think it is true with that. But they talk a lot with, um, you know, drilling new techniques. They talk that a lot with firearms and things like that. Um, I almost think it's actually true for a lot of investing things as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So since you and I last talked, there's been some interesting things that the uh, the world, the simulation, however you want to phrase it, has done. Because last time you and I were talked, I kept going, oh, I'm going to be uh, investing in Fort Myers, Florida, probably going to be living there half the time and all that. And then this Ian fella came in and just practically wiped the whole damn city off the map in one day, which, mm. uh, I mean, I guess Ian's a productive fella. Um so it's uh, slow is smooth, I think, is, is an interesting thing to think about from an investing point of view, too, because uh, I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do now in that area if I'm going to do anything. But it's it's pretty crazy when you're looking at a whole city. And I was literally even looking at Fort Myers Beach being like, yeah, I mean, you know, it makes sense. You buy a house there and you rent it out like 10 months out of the year. You could live in it for a couple months off season. And there's maybe a handful of houses that are still there. Everything else has been completely wiped out. I mean, I'm not talking like, oh, they, they lost some shingles in the roof and they need to. I'm talking like there's no more house. There's just like a like some land where there used to be a house. So it's it's kind of weird because it's it's like, um, you know, it's kind of thrown me for a loop where I look at. And this is, I think, maybe the point of what all this of my yammering is is to get onto this topic. Um, When you see, because we're we're all preparing for, you know, a recession and things like that and always talking about the opportunity. But with something where a town goes through historic destruction, like destruction it's never seen before at all. Worst, worst case scenario. From an investing point of view, and I know it sounds callous to look at it that way because the dust hasn't even settled, hadn't even been two weeks yet. But from an investment point of view, does one look at that as an opportunity? And if one does, what is the opportunity? Because that's what my I'm answer, to yeah. The answer to all and the answer to all business questions is, and again, I don't know anything, but this is where I'm at now in life. Is it depends. It depends. And I think it really depends on the length of the game that you are playing. Yeah. Right. Because um, there have been some historically, if you look back, there have been societies, cities, civilizations wiped off the map. Yeah. And if you wait long enough, cyclical, um, they're, you know, a lot of times they rebuilt and they come back stronger than ever. But it has a lot to do with time frame, right? Like there's some people that are like, yeah, this investment is going to be for my great, great grandkids, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So why not? Why not start investing somewhere that's rebuilding where everything's going to be super cheap when you're not planning to live off those investments? Yeah. You're planning for your kids to hold them. And maybe even if they may not be worth anything, well, that's fine. Right. Yeah. You're, you're not planning to be alive when those investments come to fruition. Yeah. That, that's yeah. so, uh, you okay. know, it just it, 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 it really depends. And and so it depends on the player of the game. Right. The player of the game. Every every player is different because we're all starting with a different amount of money. Right. So uh, whether or not investing in these places that have been just destroyed. Um, well, it's going to be different if you're a multi-billionaire to a multi-millionaire. Right. Like yeah. how, how you approach it is just. I think you think about it differently. Yeah, because so there's been a couple of interesting things on my end that, that have happened in terms of like learning about this because my brother-in-law moved to Fort Myers not even two months ago, probably like six weeks ago. So, you know, he's he's there for like a month <laughs> and then his wife was smart. She's like, I'm taking the kids. We're going to Mississippi. He's like, ah, it'll be fine because all the locals in Fort Myers apparently were like, ah, Every couple of years they say this and it'll go up to Tampa. It'll do this or do that. And they were saying this until like the night before the hurricane actually hit. And then they're like, yeah, you should get out of here. <laughs> so that was horrible. He, he bailed horrible. it up to Georgia um, and they really didn't have much damage. He's got a double wide. They had already they had done the hurricane strapping, which was, you know, that's one thing that I think has been really exposed is the danger of not preparing a mobile home for a hurricane because I'm looking and I'm seeing all these homes that were just moved all over the place. I'm betting that most of them were built in the seventies and eighties and they weren't strapped down. That's something if you ever sell a mobile home on land that, you know, I've done a lot of deals with John Velcamp that way with any type of financing, they require that it's strapped down properly. And is, that, is, so, that, is that what they call the, the retrofit? Yeah. Exactly. So you spend a couple thousand bucks at closing and that's what my brother-in-law had to do as well. And so his, his home had vinyl siding. Some of the siding had been ripped off, which vinyl siding is kind of junk anyway. And then they had like a lattice, um, skirting, which is junk. And some of that came off too. But if he had had hardy, like hardy plank siding or so they have this new siding that's sort of like hardy, but it looks more like wood. That stuff is super mm -hmm. durable. It's waterproof and all that. I'll bet that stuff wouldn't have come off at all. So he really, I agree. he had a few yeah. broken, you know, you know, trees busted. He's got six acres of land, but minimal, minimal damage. Um, it took a while for power to come on. It took about a week for the power to come back on, but it came back on. Um, so it's going to be, I, I am still heavily leaning towards heavily investing in that area for, for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, some places are used to hurricanes, some places aren't. So in 2005, you had Katrina. Everyone thinks of Katrina as New Orleans, but where Katrina did even more damage was up in Mississippi. If you, we went up to Biloxi, Mississippi, and you could still see there were some places where they hadn't rebuilt. So you could see it was almost a mile away from the Mississippi River before you'd see a house. And they're like, yeah, all these houses just got sucked right into the river. So, I mean, it's, cr I mean, like, I'm, I'm not talking a house submerged. I'm house talking like the river's like, I'll take that house gone. So that's crazy. There, there was an yeah. insane amount of damage done in Biloxi. They don't get hurricanes up there that often, but, but Florida gets multiple hurricanes every year. So Florida in and of itself is a little bit better prepared 
for the reality of hurricanes. The second thing, and this is something I just learned um, at 48 years old uh, as an adult with Google, because I kept, this is how dumb I am. I kept looking at that part of Florida and they're always calling it Southwest Florida. And I kept saying to myself, why do they call it Southwest Florida? Because it's not, it's like South, South Central Florida, which sounds a little thuggish, I guess, but it's, it's not, or, or I'm sorry, why don't, why don't they call it like West Central Florida or Central West Florida? Why Southwest? Because it's not at the South part of Florida. But then I looked and it's like, really, when you get to, to Naples, which is about 40 minutes South of Fort Myers, it's just all Everglades from there on. It's all like swampland. So the reason they call that area Southwest Florida is because that's like as far south as you can really inhabit. So I'm like, well, that's important because when you're restricted by something and, you know, in, in some places it's going to be the ocean in some places it's going to be in Everglades and other places it might be like there's government land or there's there's wildlife preserves or there's just something where you cannot build past a certain point that matters. When you have demand, people moving in, and you have limited space to build, that matters even more. And then the other thing is that there's a lot of shipping that goes from this area. I have not confirmed this even through Google, so I'm just going to repeat something I was told yesterday without Google. So I'm just going to say it. Supposedly, that area of Fort Myers has a lot of deep water ports, so ships that carry a lot of stuff can port there. And it's one of the only few in that area that connected to the Gulf of Mexico. So once I heard that, I'm like, okay, I don't care who leaves. Businesses are not going to leave because that is a vital resource that cannot be replicated without spending way more money than you would spend simply rebuilding or retrofitting so that you're more prepared for a hurricane. So because of that, I'm still bullish on it. And I'm also... You know, the reality is when a disaster comes, there are the tragic situations of people losing homes and losing everything and whatever. And it's like, I'm not going to touch that. Like, I'm not going to buy residential real estate anyway. But even if I was, it's like, I'm not going to go to somebody who's lost everything and, and try and give them, a, you know, a good deal for me type of thing. That's just, to me, morally, that feels wrong. But 100%. there's going to be people that are, you know, let's say you're some guy, you're 72 years old, you you own a bunch of commercial property and it was maybe damaged a little bit and you know that, you know, the insurance company is going to take forever to pay out if they stay in business at all, which is another thing to think about is Florida had been losing a bunch of commercial real estate or commercial uh, in, uh, insurance companies. Anyway, they've been losing more and more every year. The ones that stayed and are there are getting hit with such massive amounts of claims that I think without some sort of government intervention and bailout, I think they're going to go out of business. So if you're an owner, you know, and you're thinking, I mean, commercial um, insurance is always significantly more expensive than residential. And you're like, oh, God, I'm never going to get this money back. And I'm 72. And yes, because another thing to think about on how long you're playing the game is at a certain point, you got to start thinking, well, how much more time do I have to play the game? And, you know, and to me, I always look at it as like best case scenario, I got till mid 70s because I watched multiple people in my family just sort of turn to uh, just not independent, productive people at all by the time they're in their mid 70s. So I'm like, OK, that's that's as long as I potentially have in my mind. So if you're some guy who's in his early 70s, it's like, 
okay, let's say it takes five years for this town to come back. Do I want to, am I going to be alive in five years? I don't know. You know, am I going to be willing to put up with this and, and deal with negative cash flow and have my tenants move out and all that? Or if somebody like me comes in and makes them an offer, that's fair, but it's still a good deal for me, but it's good enough for him to cash out. I think there's some guys out there like that. I'm willing there's to, some I'm willing win-win to scenarios. Yeah, there's definitely win-win scenarios. And I like that because when you're doing business, there's, we've said it before, there's no right way of doing something. There's just what's right for you. And I am in agreement with you that I think that how we need to approach business is in a way that we feel good about it morally, right? Yeah. Um, and I know not maybe not everybody does business that way, but um, I just need to sleep good at night. And I also believe in a lot of that, you know, every action has an equal and opposite reaction, yes. right? Like I, I feel the quickest way to become rich is to help others become yeah. rich. Um, but I also look at the opportunity out there and places that are rebuilding is that I think that there's some incentive even for new development, right? I think that yes. that's where maybe a lot of your best deals are going to be is when the community is trying to rebuild, when these local governments are trying to incentivize businesses, come back, come back. And they're gonna give you these incentives that make it very uh, lucrative for you to start rebuilding in that area. It may be be another temple type area where it's actually cheaper to rebuild than to buy something that's existing. Yeah, that's, that's a great point because it's something where you look at it, if you're the local government, and you're saying to some developer, listen, we'll give you a five-year freeze on any property taxes, and we'll give you, you know, whatever incentives on top of that. That becomes a very good deal in a place where you have, because the thing with with places like Fort Myers, where they said the real estate was, you know, forty percent overpriced or whatever. What people never understand, and I don't know the Florida laws, but I'm assuming they're close enough to Texas, is that people think, oh, you know, you big shot guy, you're coming in, you're building these things and doing all that, and the thing that they never realize is that the property taxes accelerate so quickly that very quickly it becomes hard to even get a loan or anything else on these properties because the taxes get so high and they way outpace any sort of rental increases. So that, you know, I had a property in Austin, for instance, that in a three-year period, the property taxes on the on the thing went from like six or seven thousand bucks a year to $22,000 a year in like three years. So that's three times as much. So that's like saying if I'm charging somebody $2,000 a month on rent, I should all of a sudden be able to charge them six grand a month on rent just to keep up because it's three times as much. And there's almost no market in history that's ever done that that fast. And yet the taxes were able to triple in like three years. So that can really, and that's actually why I sold the deal because I literally would have to double the rent and I had long-term rentals that are renters that I really liked. So I'm like, okay, I'm gonna have to kick these guys out, do some repairs, double the rent, hope I get somebody in just to keep up with the property taxes. So, and I'd like to say something on that because it kind of goes back to the idea. I don't think there's any right answer to where, even in terms of length of investment, like how long you have to play the game different for everybody. Right. Um, but Also the idea that there are, I was thinking to myself, you know, there are certain places that are just never good to invest, right? Like if, if there was a hell on earth and you're like, "Eh, that's probably a place I'd never want to invest, 
But in reality, there's always someone Someone's that can find money. the opportunity yeah. in these in these types of environments. Yeah. However, again, what is your superpower as an entrepreneur, right? Yeah. Where do you thrive? And I think yeah. it goes back to, for me, it's finding the path of least resistance, right? So, so some people, they're like, I have a niche where I am just very, very good yeah. of going into these chaotic environments and finding ways to create opportunity. Yeah. And I don't know if that's so much for me, um, but I know that there are people out there that definitely yeah. do this and make a lot of money doing this. Um, I am more of a looking for the low hanging fruit. Yeah. And Ray Dalio actually said something I've been pondering a lot because we talk about happiness and business and balance and all that type of thing and, and how you're getting pushed and pulled in these directions and, and you're trying to find the balance. And for me, I'm a very like I worry a lot because I feel like that's how you create these contingencies. Yeah. But I've always read that that's not a good thing, right? Like that's not really a good thing to do. Um, and then I heard Ray Dalio say, um, recently in an interview, he said that if you, he goes, if you worry, you don't need to worry. Mm, and okay. yeah, I, I like that. I, yeah. I love that. Right. Cause the person that's, and what he means by that is that the person that's worrying is usually coming up with these contingency plans, yes. right? So if you worry, you don't need to worry. And if you don't yeah. worry, you need to worry. Yes. And, uh, I agree with that. yeah, yeah, yeah. Cause there's, so, there are. Yeah, looking for that low hanging fruit and path of least uh, path of least resistance. I think that's something that should always come up in, in, in business, right? Because we talk about this a lot in terms of making money. Like I, I tell Salia a lot of times, like we have a hundred different ways to make money. So out of the hundred different ways, let's choose the top three that make us the most amount of money doing the least amount of work. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and also there's some other things that go into play, passion, fulfillment, does it bring us happiness? Do we like what we're doing? Do we like who we're working with? All that type of thing. But really, it boils down to making the most amount of money, doing the least amount of work. And yeah. I would say that that should come into question with anybody who's investing because why would you want – yeah, sure, you can go out to a chaotic area and make a lot of money. But for me, the question is can you go out to another area, make as much money, doing less amount of work? Yeah, yeah, that's that's the real question. And, and you, you're right. I mean, um, this sounds like a T-shirt or something like that. For some people, chaos is their business. Um, for, our, for our friend Colby, I mean, like basically anytime, I mean, because he's mobilizing some of his guys for Fort Myers right now. I mean, anytime there's fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, whatever, that's part of his business. It's like, you know, anytime there's trouble in the world, he's probably going there. He's got guys going there. So, so chaos literally is his business. Um and that's awesome. That's not for everybody. Um, I'm kind of the same way you were in terms of talking about, I don't, I, I'm still supposed to go to Fort Myers in like a week and a half. I'm not sure if I'm going to go or not yet because it feels a little bit too soon. Um, but I do want to kind of see how quickly is this recovery happening type of thing because, you know, there's some places that, there's some parts of New Orleans that still have not recovered from Katrina. I mean, if you go to the Ninth Ward, it's still primarily abandoned. There's tons of empty lots and stuff like that. That may never come back simply because it literally is under sea level. It's already flooded before, so nobody's going to insure it. Um, so it's probably not going to come back. There's other neighborhoods that are significantly nicer than they were before Katrina. So it's like, you know, you, you kind of get a shift. So 
sometimes you have to lay back and kind of see, well, where are people going? What's going to happen? Are certain neighborhoods just never going to really come back, but other neighborhoods are going to come back better? Um, that, again, is more of a residential issue, and I'm looking at this more from a commercial and industrial kind of way. But it's important to to see both and, and you know, see, because there's definitely the possibility that the city doesn't come back nearly as strong as it was before, that people just migrate up to Tampa and places like that, or maybe people just leave the state and come to Texas. I mean, that's a possibility as well. Um, it certainly makes me more looking at stuff in Central Texas in terms of like, you know, I kind of looked at, okay, by about a year from now, I should be wrapping up my next project. Maybe that's it for a while for me in Central Texas. But now I'm like, now I'm going to actually try and do something even bigger than this next one I'm doing after that. So I'm starting to look for land and, and ideas and stuff like that because I'm like, you know, I, I certainly may be in Florida a little bit, but I'm certainly going to be in Texas a lot more than I thought I was going to be two weeks ago um, because of the change. Because it's like, you know, again, if it takes three, five years for something to come back, you kind of want to be where it's coming back and got good momentum. But in the very beginning, um, I feel like that is a different business. That's a very risky business. That's a very vulture intense business as well, because there's going to be a lot of people mm. to get taken advantage of. Um, that's, probably, yes. you know, so it's, and right now it's not even at that point. I think right now it's still like, you know, handing out water and food. And, um, you know, I thought about that, even trying to help with that, but I'm like, I don't know. I, I may still do that too. I mean, I just, I don't know if that really makes that much of an impact, but, um, but it is. Well, great. let me ask you also, this is another, and again, there's no, people are looking for answers and yeah. um, I'm not sure there's any right answer. There's just kind of what you do. And, and I'm just going to keep reiterating that because I, I really don't know what the answer is and, yeah. and, and perhaps there isn't one and it's different for everybody, but there's a lot of things to consider. There's always that. And I think it's yeah. good that you write down all these possibilities, yeah. right? Like there's not one way of doing something and yeah. there's not one thing to do. There's all these different possibilities and it just comes down to how do you select what you are going to do because there's yeah. only enough time. There's only so much time in your life yeah. in the day and you've yeah. got to focus your energy somewhere. And almost always, if you try to serve everyone, you will serve no one. Serve no one. So you yeah. really got to be laser focused on what you're yeah. doing. So one of the questions I would ask if you and I were sitting down and trying to decide on an investment, yeah. I would say something to the effect, okay, is everything working now? Like uh, all your investments, are they giving you a return and are they promising and are they healthy? And does the future outlook of those investments look good? Yeah. And that's and my question yes. to you. I would say yes. Yeah. And you would say yes. Okay. Yeah. So then my, my, my follow-up question would be instead of moving somewhere else. Yeah. And I'm just being devil's advocate instead of yeah. moving somewhere else, yeah. why not double down on what you yeah. already know is working? I, I, I am definitely leaning towards that, towards doubling down um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, like as you build traction and a reputation in one place, it gets somewhat easier to start, you know, build a track record. That certainly helps. Um, so, yeah, I think that that may, that just may end up being what happens. I mean, it may be something where, um, you know, there's a play, there's, cause it's like, so when we went to Santa Fe, I looked around and I looked at some property or whatever. I'm like, I'm not going to invest here. I mean, I like it here, but I just, I don't see any business moving here. I see a bunch of rich old people moving here. I would like to be one of those rich old people one day, but 
You know, I, I just don't, I don't see any, I mean, you do see young. You're already rich. You're just not, you're not old yet. Middle-aged. I'm, I'm middle-aged. Uh, not enough of one and too much of another. I'll let you decide which and which, but, um, but yeah, it's like one of those things I, I don't, the only business I really see is like service businesses to service all these rich old people. Um, and that's, to me, it's like, ah, I don't know if I really would want to invest in that. Cause I don't, I, I just, I don't know enough about that. Maybe there's, I'm sure there's money to be made, but it's just, at the moment doesn't interest me. And maybe that's what Florida ends up being as well. It's it's totally possible. I guess it's just one of those things where um, anytime I feel like you have such a huge impactful event, I told Chantel, and I know I told you this last week before too, it's like, this is where fortunes are made and lost. And I certainly don't want to lose you know, fortune, but at the same time, um, more of a intellectual mental experiment to sort of brainstorm with people like you that are smart people that that understand opportunity i do want to see for myself kind of see because i saw i see some videos where i'm like oh my god this looks like a, a bomb hit and then i see other videos where i'm like dude if i didn't know the hurricane just hit i wouldn't know there's people around there's stores open they're like it looks fine and my brother-in-law keeps saying it's fine so it's like one of those things that you know as we know with the news if it bleeds it leads so, you know, they're going to go to show as much chaos as possible because showing like, yeah, it's kind of normal. There's people here and there's Bob. <laughs> He's always here. Like, I don't know. I mean, like it would be like, why are we filming this? Who cares? You know, maybe you know, that that's that's a possibility as well, um, in which case maybe there's very little impact other than the insurance issue, which is like I'm not in the insurance business and I'm not going to get in the insurance business. You could say like in the remodel business, construction business, but construction was already the number one industry in Fort Myers already to begin with. So I don't know. It's it's just one of those things that it was weird to me that the place that I had on my radar literally was ground zero. And then I got a buddy who lives up in Pauley's Island, South Carolina, and that was one of the other places that had huge floods. I'm like, okay, what are the odds that these two random places that no one's really heard about both get hit by the same thing. And I know people in both places. It's just weird. Um, so I don't know what to make of that. And sometimes a coincidence is just a coincidence. You know, just because I have my my sights set on a place in Florida during a hurricane season and a hurricane hits, it may mean nothing. Maybe I'm the one just putting meaning on it or looking for meaning where there's no meaning. So Yeah, and but not only that, but it, you you start you start traveling down a road, and this has been probably my whole life and your whole life, you start traveling down a road and you think that you you are focused in on a destination. Yeah. And that destination changes while you're traveling along it that does. road because you it find does. different opportunity. The yeah. the I think the the real value in doing everything that you're doing about looking at these different places is just to get your mind working to start looking for a different opportunity. Your yeah. head is on that swivel. You're continuing to do these exercises on what's opportunity, what's not opportunity. Yeah. This is a very good exercise in the mental model. The map is not the territory, right? Yes. Like you don't, you, you're, there's, there's what's going out on the news. There's, there's what's going on based off what your brother-in-law is saying, but really nobody really knows. You just don't know it well enough. And, and another thing that I heard someone say before, um, was don't invest in a business and you unless you know it well enough to run it on your own. That doesn't yeah. mean you are going to run it on your own, yeah. 
but don't invest in a business until you know it well enough to run it on your own. And that just means you have to know the territory, right? And it goes back into, again, another mental model that I really love um, from Charlie Munger is only play games that you're good at, right? And that just goes into, um, I'm going to invest in areas where I know I I have a higher probability of winning because I really know the territory. I, I, I know the people, I know the game. And I play yeah. this game very, very well. Yeah. No, and, and it's funny you say that because I'm just thinking about this now. And I, I have made a very similar mistake in the past just thinking about it where when I finally got my mobile home business really running pretty smoothly in Austin, we moved to California. And I arrogantly thought, oh, it's just me. I know more about these things now. I'm just smarter. I'm just better at making money. So look out, California. I'm back, baby. And um, it was an unparalleled disaster for a lot of reasons. And one of the main reasons was I kept thinking like, okay, it worked this way in Texas. It'll work here. And it clearly didn't for a lot of reasons. Just number one, the geography. So when I lived in Austin, I could drive 15 minutes and get to 10 different parks. And I knew the park managers and all that. In that part of California, I had to drive like 40 minutes before I even got to one park. And they were like, not the kind of parks I wanted to work in. The ones that really were decent were almost an hour away. So right off the bat, that should have caused me to change strategy, but I didn't. So when I'm thinking about this with, you know, Florida and things like that, you're you're definitely right. Like I know how to do business in Central Texas and I know the key players. And the more I stick around, the better I'm going to get at that. When you go somewhere else and you sort of start over, um, they don't know who you are. And so unless you've got ungodly amounts of money, no one's going to really care and you're going to have to sort of build your track record. So the smartest thing I think to do in the midterm, in the mean, you know, in the next few years is just keep building in, in Central Texas, keep building, keep, you know, building up that portfolio. Um, and if I stick in Florida for long enough, then I can start seeing, because the problem is I'm going into it with the mentality of like, oh, there will be opportunity here, here, and here. In a place that literally I've been to maybe once or twice in this area, and it's been like six or seven years since I've been there. I don't know what the opportunity is. And that's part of what you're saying. And I think that's a really important thing to remember is that just because there's specific opportunity in a certain place, that's great. And when you figure that, you should take full advantage of that. Should you go somewhere else, that part needs to start over again because that specific opportunity may not be there. And that's okay. What you're working on is the skill of looking for what the opportunity is. When you start going into it, deciding that this is going to be the opportunity and trying to force that in, that is no different than forcing a knockout, forcing a submission, doing anything in martial arts that we know you know, you as you know, when you try and force the knockout, that's when you're most vulnerable to getting knocked out. And that's also when you get tired. And that when you get tired is when you also get knocked out and you lose fights that way. And you know what I'll say on that, Carter, really quick? Is it almost always the sign of an amateur is when they are trying a muscle technique? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, I think. And that, that goes right back into slow is smooth. Smooth is fast. Smooth is fast. Right? And, I, and this you is, show this someone is a technique in jujitsu and they've never seen it before, they almost always muscle it. And yeah. one of the things that they'll tell the, the, the veteran black belt is, how come you're not tired? 
Yeah. How come you're not tired? Yeah. And it's because the black belt has become more efficient because he's not muscling the technique. He's yeah. using pure technique. Yeah. No, it's, it's very and so true. It's under, and so business is very much the same way. It's yeah. an understanding playing games that you have a higher probability of winning because yeah. your technique is so much better because, and where does technique come from? It comes from the repetition, right? Yeah. The repetition and your repetition is investing here in certain areas. That's where all your reps are at and yeah. you've gotten very good at it. You yeah. have a very good system in doing it. Yeah. The mistake, and I agree with you is oftentimes not impossible, but oftentimes thinking that what works here if I just take this system, this exact same system, it will work somewhere else. Yeah. And that isn't always true. Yeah, no, it's definitely not. I think that, um, and I'm glad we're having this talk because I think you're, uh, you're saving me lots of money, hopefully. Um, and I, you know, I think that remembering that the real skill is seeing what the opportunity is. Because I think if you go into it being like, I'm just gonna have an open mind and observe what I see. And what I mean by that is like, you know, a lot of people, they hear what they want to hear and they see what they want to see. But if you can step back and just observe what you're actually seeing, that may lead you to understand and see opportunities that other people aren't seeing. Because if you go into this being like, this town is going to hell, like it's, it's never going to recover, you're going to see that. But if you also go into it being like, oh, it's going to recover and be even better in like three years, well, you're going to see that. But that might not be both those versions of that movie might be wrong because more than likely it's somewhere in between. And it's like, OK, this sector is going to return pretty quickly because there's absolute demand for this right away. OK, so that's good to know. That's low hanging fruit. This is sort of mid tier. It's going to come back, but it's going to take a couple years. This is long term. It might take seven years. It might take 10 years. It might never come back in the same way. And that's important to sort of divide that up. And I think that's where you're, you're seeing what's actually happening. So when I do go there, that I think is the real goal is just to see. And, and that's I do want to meet up with. Um, it's, it's not funny. It's sad. It's crazy. But when I, I was emailing with a couple of brokers, so I had one that I was going to stay at one of their short term rentals and another one I was going to meet up with who's a commercial broker, second generation. His dad started the company, still owns the company. He works for his dad's company and they've both been very successful sort of individually and all that. And the, the commercial broker, I mean, he just from the email, it read like a shell shocked person just seems like I've lived here my whole life. And I've never seen anything even close to this. He's like, my my parents lost everything. They lost their house. They lost everything in their house. They lost all their cars, like everything. And to me, I was like, okay, it's too soon to meet with this guy. Because right now, it's just seeing what's lost. And and I can't imagine that. I can't imagine something coming in and destroying my house and losing everything. That That would be all I would think about for I don't know how long. And then eventually I might be like, you know what? I always kind of didn't like this about the house or I didn't like that. And I, I would start looking at like, you know, you get in that mindset where you're you're just dealing, all you see is the loss. And then sooner or later you start thinking about the recovery, the moving on, you know, that kind of thing. But that takes that takes time. So that's kind wow, of- Wow, you really like the, hit on something that, that I feel like is the core of success and entrepreneurship. 
And that is a person's ability. I think sometimes we take it for granted and maybe delving in a little bit deeper on where this comes from or how you develop it or if it can't even be developed is your ability to see opportunity. I think that that is at the core of anyone's success, your ability to see opportunity. And how do you develop that? Where does that even come from? And how do you make that even, how do you make that better? You know, because it's, it really is, a. it's more of a mindset, right? And the more and more you spend time in entrepreneurship and business, and it doesn't matter, you can, anything that you want to be the best at sports, yeah. you'll often hear it's 80% mental, 20% physical, or however you want to play out the numbers, right? But it does come back to your, you know, how you perceive things, your, your perception, because you're absolutely 100% right. You and I can be looking at the very, very same thing and see two different things. Yeah. Right. And that is almost always the very beginning that makes the difference of who's going to make money, who's going to be happy and who is not. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's that's a great point. Um, You know, I I can only speak from my own experience on something like this. And. When the the crash happened in 2008, I didn't know, like, you know, I've sort of learned about uh, mortgage default swaps and stuff like that by reading the book, The Big Short. But I had no idea what those were at the time. Um, I didn't know. All I knew was I had done a really good flip, in my opinion, like in terms of just the quality of the work, the speed, the budget. And it didn't sell. And it it took three and a half months for that to sell, which at that time, before that, that would be an insanely long time, like especially given the area and all that. And I was like, okay, something is wrong. Like something's like, cause I, I don't think that, I think I did a good job on this and, and it's not, and we had to reduce the price and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, I don't think we're being too ambitious with this. I just, this, this just feels like something's wrong. And that made me pull back. And it was right around then that the crash started. So it wasn't like I'm like, you know, oh, I, I, I saw the markets and I was like, these things. Are, I mean, like, yes, in hindsight, everyone's an expert, right? You look at, oh, of course they shouldn't have done that. But when you have guys, when you have the amount of money that can be made and people are like, oh, it's just greed. I'm like, it's easy to say it's just greed when you don't have that uh, opportunity. You know what I mean? It's like one of these things where if somebody could do this, this and this and make a million bucks in a couple of days, 99.9% of the population is going to do that. This whole idea of like, oh, just greedy people. It's like everybody's greedy. Just some people have the opportunity to act on that greed and a lot of people don't. And the ones who act on it usually do because that's what most people would do. But it's a way to like sort of separate. Anyway, so um, so I felt like something was wrong. And then once it happened, um, I was lucky enough to read the, the Deals on Wheels book. And I, I also was... By dealing with a lot of sellers directly, which I had not really done that much of before, most of the stuff I'd done before was dealing with brokers. And brokers are always going to say like, oh, yeah, this person could sell it tomorrow, sell it in 10 years from now. They don't care, like whatever, like the price is firm. But when you're talking to, to sellers directly, especially in mobile homes, they tend to be way more honest. So it was something where like, you know, I'm moving or my husband's sick and I got to leave, like. So I was like, okay, you can start telling the motivation and, and and like you would say, looking for the problem a lot quicker. And I started realizing like this is the same problem over and over again. Like everyone wants to sell 
quickly because something bad has happened and they want to sell for cash. Everybody who wants to buy wants to do payments because they don't have enough cash. And I'm like, okay, well, this is clearly there's a problem. I can insert myself in the middle of this and, and, and this can make me some money. So it was, it was sort of a combination of putting myself, I think the main thing to kind of understand opportunities, putting yourself in specific environments. Because I had like been to mobile home parks or whatever, but I certainly had never spent a lot of time talking to people who were looking to sell and people that were looking to buy. And, and by doing this, when you start, I think a lot of it's just sort of looking for patterns. When you start hearing the same stories over and over again, you're like, okay, this means something. Even if you don't know what it means, just take note of the fact that you're hearing repetition. And if you're hearing repetition on two different ends of something, now that's where you're like, okay, there's definitely something there. You know, because if all the sellers are just saying the same thing, like, I want to get out, I hate this town, whatever, and all the buyers are like, I'm not buying there, I hate that town, I don't want to get in there. Okay, that tells you this might not be a good town. But, but when you hear the seller wants something, but they can't get it because of money or financing, but they want it, and more than one wants it, and then the buyer's like, I want to get out, but I can't find a cash buyer. The seller wants to get out, but they can't find a cash buyer. Okay, that's something. Like there's some sort of opportunity there. You know, so it's, I think it's just sort of that specific type of observation in, in specific things. Um, and that can be, I think, applied to a lot of different things. That's just how I applied it to that, that nature. Yeah. Um, so it's, I love it. Yeah, I think I a lot it. of just kind of trying I, you to keep people involved. Yes, I I think that's great. I think that for me, the way I began to develop um, how, how I re-envisioned what, what, what I was seeing before me was, uh, number one, um, I first had to want to make the change. I had to realize that, like, okay, um, I got it. It's almost like the George Costanza. Like if I want something to change, I got to do a 180, right? Yeah, yeah. So I just got to force myself to start thinking differently, right? Yeah. Go against my initial instincts because yeah. apparently my initial instincts have not been uh, getting me where I wanted to go. Right. So the my first step in doing that was I started to read books and just books about the topics that I was interested in. But I would say hands down, the number one thing that has allowed me to sharpen my ability to see opportunity is going back to that fundamental, show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Yeah. I always believe that whatever it is you want to do in life, just find people that are already doing it really, really good and surround yourself with those people. Yeah. So as opposed, when I wanted to be a really good boxer, I started hanging out with people who I believed were like on that same path and they wanted to be world champions. Yeah. They were also not just saying it, they were backing it up with their actions. They were training like they were world champions. They were competing at high, a high level, surrounded myself uh, with people like that. When I wanted to be good at my old profession, I surrounded myself with people that were very good in law enforcement, right? So that way I can learn from these people and they can kind of bring me up. And then when I got into entrepreneurship, I surrounded myself with people who had a good mind for entrepreneurship. And I began to study how they saw the world and they never looked, they always looked for, there were, there were um, what I read was, um, what's the word for it? Constructive optimist. So in other words, 
they saw the problems in the world, but they always believed that they could provide a solution. Yeah. And that is how yeah. they they made money as opposed to just being a straight up pessimist where you're just like the world is doomed and there's nothing yeah. anybody can do about it. Yeah. Right. An entrepreneur yeah. is going to be like, OK, there's a problem, but there is a way to solve it. And and they have just enough ego to believe that they can they can be the ones that actually yeah. solve the problem. Yeah. Um, and and that's, you know, that has that so far has uh, served me well. But I believe it even comes down to when we were talking about morals and ethics. So let's say uh, this is something that I was telling my son. I was like, OK, so we're talking about you want to be you know, good at jujitsu, hang out with other people that are really good at jujitsu. Oh, you want to be a good student? Hang out with other good students. Yeah. Right. Don't hang out with like the worst students. They're, you're, you're, you're not going to bring them up. They're going to most likely bring you down. Yes. And I was like, hey, and you know what? The, when, the, when we're talking about morals and ethics, you want to be a really good person. You believe like that's your number one thing in life is first and foremost, be a really good person, even before business, before jujitsu, before anything. Just want to be a good person. Hang out with other really good people. Yeah. Don't look at how much money they have, anything like that. Evaluate their character and what principles they live by. Principles. Yeah. I think people forget what principles mean. I was going. I, I, I'm. I was going over this with my son over the weekend. A principle is something that you that you set, and it's a principle because under no circumstance you violate it. Yeah. The moment you violate it, it's not a principle that you live by. It's just kind of like this wishy-washy rule that yeah. when it serves your purpose, then you kind of follow it. But you can always kind of break the rule. Principles are things that you—they're like the laws of physics. Yeah. They cannot be broken. Yeah, right. Like telling the truth is a principle that we try to live by. I try to teach my son. Look, like under any circumstance, we never ever lie. Right. Yeah. Like it just can never do that. Yeah. And if you want to be a better human being, you need to surround yourself with better human beings. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And you know, when I was just sort of circling back to your own business experience. Um, you've had a couple of interesting pivotal moments. Well, I think the first one was with Robles. Uh, I remember this being one of the original Robles models. Um, aged out of Robles modeling too. If you look at the site now, you're like, what are you talking about? It's a bunch of young people. Yeah, that's that's what's happening. Right? <laughs> um, you know, what, maybe if Robles comes back with the middle-aged, you know, the the old bastard <laughs> jiu-jitsu line or whatever. I like that. Back. Um, but uh, you were going to do it the conventional way, essentially. And that's when you were talking to me about it. And that's when I was getting that sort of pained, like, <laughs> good luck, look on my face. Because, <laughs> you know, I knew Howard from Howard Combat Kimonos. I mean, I knew different people that were in that business. And I'm like, this is a tough business to, to make work, especially, you know, there's just, I, I just didn't see the opportunity. And then you had that moment on Facebook where, where Issa Kafina, our buddy, mm -hmm wanted a gi of a specific color. And he's like, can you guys do this? And rather than being like, oh no, we're just doing this. You're like, oh, you were open-minded enough to go, yeah, we could we try to do that. And then when you did it and you got it the way he liked it and he posted up and people were like, hey, can I get one? You started going rather than being like, oh God, whatever. You're like, no, maybe this is, okay, maybe this is what we do. Because you were listening to what the consumer wanted Rather than your vision of like, no, I'm just going to make the best skis in the world and they will just come. You're like, no, what do people want? Oh, they want something custom. Well, who else is doing? Well, nobody else is doing this. Well, I mean, you have this in everything else in life. You have a custom suit. You have this, you have that. Like jujitsu attracts people that have a lot of money. Why would somebody not want a custom gi? 
Like, and once somebody gets one, why are they ever going to not have one? And once you start looking at it like that, like you build a business that no one else has built on something that is still ubiquitous in every other type of business. So it was a brilliant understanding of a niche that maybe you didn't see at first, but what you did so well is you saw what was happening. You didn't see what you wanted to see. You saw what was happening, which is, oh, people want that. Because then you can even now, once you build a brand, now you can do the lines of like, okay, we'll do like this thing. We'll do a Cobra Kai gi and we'll drop that. Because now people who are already fans or this, like, oh, I'd get, oh, that's cool. I'll get that. So you can get that, but you don't rely on that. The way a lot of these other companies, like they have to do these whole things and they get all your money long in advance. And maybe eventually you get that whatever gi it is. Uh, and you get that disappointment when it doesn't fit or whatever. Now, you know, I mean, like, it's a very different model. Um, the pump and dump, as they used to call it in other businesses. So, I mean, it's, it's. Um, I, I think you did that. And then even in the painting business, you had some guys working for you. They were doing good work. And you realize, like, man, this guy does good work. And he's independent. I just tell him what I need done. And he gets it done. And, and it looks good. And then you started having him do some stuff for other people, me included. He did good work. And then you're like, huh, well, that's interesting. Well, let me talk to somebody who's an expert. You talk to Rob. And then you're like, well, okay, then it's just basically me lining up jobs for, for this guy. And, he, you know, Enrique's doing good work. He just doesn't like the whole, like, finding the job, answering the phone, doing it. Well, I can do all that. We already do that for Robles. So it's, again, you're seeing where there is demand, where is there a problem, where can I be the solution? And you didn't like set out to start a painting company. You were getting mobile homes done. And then you realize like, hmm, this might actually be better than the mobile home business. So it's your ability to adapt in the fly. Your fight IQ, your business fighting IQ. <laughs> is high, well, I would level. say that I've surrounded myself with very good people who are, that see opportunity. And I think that's all it was is what yep. you're defining is my ability to see opportunity. And when I say see opportunity, I was seeing problems that people weren't necessarily, um, other people weren't necessarily uh, trying to solve because that would have been the mistake with Robles is that yeah. if you looked at the problem, the problem is people do jujitsu, but in order to do jujitsu, you need a gi, right? And there was already, a, you know, so many companies that were solving that problem, right? Yes. And how do you separate yourself from the pack? And it becomes very, very, very difficult, especially if there's some companies that have been around for a very long time. They've yep. already earned a lot of trust within the community. Yep. So you have to start looking for different problems to solve and be authentic, right? Yeah. You know, and when you when you're authentic, then you're not competing with anyone else. And I'll tell you. It's just keeping your, I, I love that you brought that up because it really is keeping your head on a swivel and looking for opportunity and the path of least resistance. So the painting business turned out to be one of them. Well, what happened recently with the painting business is that, well, the past eight months um, is that we would be painting houses. And a lot of times we were painting houses, I was noticing that people were either moving in or they were putting their house on the market. So it was A, they were moving in or B, they were moving out and putting their home on the market. Either way, the comment I always received was, can you paint this house before, if we were moving into the house, it's a house that we just purchased, can you paint this house while it's empty, 
before we move in. And then once you're done painting, can you let me know? Because I want to get cleaners in here before we move in. Okay, so I started to hear this pattern. Yeah. Then people were putting their house on the market, saying the same thing. Mo, we want to get our house on the market by this date. Can you paint it by this date? Yep. Yes, I can, Mrs. Smith. Great, Mo, you got the job. But please let me know as soon as this is completed because I want to have a cleaning service come in and do a move out clean. Yep. Okay, Mrs. Smith, I will let you do that. Or I will do that. And this went on for about a year. And no one says I'm the sh I'm, I'm not the smartest guy. Eventually, if it happens enough, yeah. I'll, I'll pick up on the pattern. Yes. And I eventually picked up on the pattern and I said, hey, why am I passing off all this work yes. on cleaning yeah. when I can just pick up both of them at the same time? Yes. Especially if you trust me enough to paint your house, you're probably going to trust me enough already to clean your home, right? Yeah. Like uh, you're, you're already trusting me with giving by giving me your money. Um, so I can probably handle this service as well. And it's a much easier service. So we just started to launch that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that goes back to what we were just saying earlier is that, you know, I was saying that with mobile home stuff, I kept hearing the same story. And when you keep hearing the same story of I'm moving in, do you have a cleaning? Like I'm moving out because you're right. I mean, I'm literally getting a home painted in East Texas. We're going to do the flooring step after that. I get it cleaned. And you know, I remember the, uh, I think it's actually this guy, or maybe it's another guy I hired before he was the painter. And he's like, Hey, um, just so you know, my wife does cleaning too. So once we get, and I'm like, they go so well together. So it's like finding a lot of finding, but a lot of times you don't necessarily know what goes well together until you keep hearing the same story. And that's what I mean by when you immerse yourself in some type of world, painting world, mobile home world, jujitsu world, whatever world might be, start looking for patterns. Start hearing what people are saying over and over again, because that's where the opportunity is. And sometimes you walk in having no idea, but if you listen to those patterns, because I mean, you know, we know guys that own painting companies. How many people own a painting company and a cleaning company? Like, I don't know anybody who does. Yet, I don't now that I think about it, I'm like, why doesn't everybody? Like, because it makes perfect sense, but it's like one of those things that you listened to what actually was being said instead of hearing what you wanted to hear. Which is, hey, you did a great and job. I love that. And you know what I mean? Because most people just take the compliment. Oh, yeah, yeah. We'll get it out by then. And they'll just focus on like, oh, they like what we're doing. This is great. Oh, we'll keep, you know, tell your friends, blah, blah, blah. Versus you were like, man, everyone's talking about cleaning. Why couldn't I do that? And that's the difference between you and a lot of these other people is that you hear what's actually being said. And maybe that's what this episode is called. Hear what I'm actually saying. I don't know. But I think that might I like be all that. I have to say. I like that. <laughs> and I've heard everything that you've had to say. <laughs> Mic drop. To who check yeah. out uh, this episode or to re-listen to our past episodes, go to the Jiu-Jitsu of Life. Check us out on Apple iTunes. Like, review, subscribe. Shout out to Robles, makers of the world's finest custom Jiu-Jitsu apparel. Nobody can be you better than you. Be authentic. Robles, shout out to Yellow Pine Investments. They make custom warehouses. Be sure to check them out. And check out Quantum Leap Web Design for all your web design needs. As always, I am Mo. That is my brother and partner in crime, Carter Fisk. And as always, we wish you guys nothing but the best, both on and off the mat. Thank you for listening. Thank you, guys. That's it for this episode of the Jiu-Jitsu of Life. Your hosts are Carter Fisk and Mo Siddiqui. This podcast is brought to you by Robles, makers of the world's finest custom jiu-jitsu apparel. You can subscribe to the Robles newsletter to get the exclusive content at robles.com.
You can find more episodes of this show on our website at thejujitsuoflife.com. And you can subscribe to us at Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and we wish you a great week, both on and off the mat.